Thanks uh, for joining us today. Again, um, it's good for us to be able to, to worship together. It's our uh, privilege and, and joy uh, to welcome you here for those who are new. Uh, if you're new today or if you haven't been here for a while, it's a good day to, to kind of be new because we're uh, beginning, a, a beginning a series today on the book of uh, Philippians, book of Philippians written by the Apostle Paul. Um, pretty excited about this one. Philippians is a, a short book. It's just four chapters. It's a letter, uh, just four chapters, but it's packed and, and just filled with all kinds of, of truth and all kinds of nuggets of, of blessing and challenge and encouragement. Uh, for some of y'all, if you were to be asked what your favorite Bible verse in all the scripture is, some of you may quote from Philippians. There's a lot of great and amazing uh, verses and passages in Philippians, things like, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, uh, found in Philippians. Another one that uh, says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For others, uh, my God will supply, will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And, and still others might quote different things. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that somehow I too may attain to the resurrection within the dead. Many of us may quote and cite these different verses in Philippians amongst our favorite, amongst our treasury of favorite verses of scripture. But one thing that we need to realize, and one thing that I hope will become clear today and as we study this over the next 10 weeks, is that when the book of Philippians was written, Paul wasn't just sitting there somewhere in his office thinking, oh, you know, what can I, what kind of a pithy statement can I write that they could memorize and think about and make them feel good in their moments of hardship? It wasn't like a, a Hallmark, Hallmark card writer just sitting there thinking and, and thinking and thinking, oh, here's a good one. I can do everything through Christ who gives me. That's a good one. Maybe they can write that on an index card and drive to work every day looking at that verse. He wasn't, it was, that's not what it was. The book of Philippians, like every other passage of scripture, like every other book in scripture, was written by a real human being as a real letter to real people living in a very real situation just like you and me. And so my hope and prayer is that as we go through the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, that we'll begin to realize and understand the context in which it was written so that rather than simply pulling passages out of Scripture and using them as, as, as memory, which is a good thing, but that in seeing it in its context, that the fullness of joy that Paul experienced as he was writing to the Philippian church would be our joy as well. And so in placing these verses in their proper context, we'd be able to see the full or meaning of it, and it would take on richer and deeper meaning in our lives. That's my hope. That's my prayer. That's how I've been praying for this series, and I pray that it would be uh, the same for you as we uh, look through this. So uh, let me set the table here. Um, Acts chapter 16, if you're looking to prepare yourself for uh, this series, a couple good things that you can do is, one, you can read Acts chapter 16 because this sets the table for the founding of the Philippian church, and then the other thing you can do is you could read through the book of Philippians. It's just four chapters, less than a thousand uh, words in it. You can read it uh, in probably about 10 minutes, but that could probably be the best way that you could prepare yourself in addition to praying for your heart and praying for uh, each time we gather, praying for me. Um, but that might be the best way that you can prepare. But here's what happened. Acts chapter 16 tells us that Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, and a bunch of their, their buddies uh, were wanting to do missions work. They're trying to take the gospel to the frontier, to places where the gospel had not gone yet. And so they're trying to get into Asia, but for some reason they couldn't go. For like some reason, that it says the Spirit of God prevented them from going into Asia. This is about 48 to 50 AD. They could not get into Asia for whatever reasons, maybe like us who were in Ecuador, maybe there was this huge river 
that they could not cross and could not get into the other side to get into Asia. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe there were armed guards or someone of that nature preventing them from getting in. Maybe they couldn't get government clearance to get into Asia. Paul doesn't say, Luke doesn't say in Acts, but whatever the reason was, it says they tried and tried and tried but could not get into Asia. And so they're thinking, where can we take the gospel? And one night, Paul is just kind of chilling. He might have been sleeping. He has this vision of this man from Macedonia, this huge region called Macedonia. And this man is begging and pleading and saying, please come and bring the gospel to Macedonia. So Paul wakes up the next morning, says to his buddies, he's like, hey, dudes, we got to go to Macedonia because the harvest there is plentiful. Ain't no workers. And so we've got to go. This is the call that God has placed in our hearts. So they packed up their belongings and they went to Macedonia. And in this region, there is a small little city that was small in size, but it was huge in its importance. It was a, it was a city called Philippi. Philippi was important because it was located on this major stretch of road, this major artery connecting Rome to the eastern provinces, and Philippi was one of these important cities there. And so Paul said, in going into Macedonia, that's where we're going to set up shop. And so Paul and his buddies get into Macedonia, they get into Philippi, and his custom whenever he went into a new city was he would go to the synagogue where Jewish people would be, and he would begin to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them there. But in going to Philippi, he realized there wasn't the synagogue there. It was a Gentile city. But instead, he found outside of the city gates, there's this river, right? And at this river, there's this group of women. They gathered there, and they were worshiping God, and they were praying. And so amongst them was this lady named Lydia. She was a baller. She was rich. She was a, a seller of fine linens. She had all kinds of money. She was a God-fearing woman, worshiper of God. And so the Lord opened up her heart. Paul preached the message of the gospel to Lydia, and she became a believer, And she opened up her home and said, if I'm a true believer, then you need to come and stay with me. And so they did. From there, they met this demon-possessed slave girl. She was a fortune teller. And she was uh, predicting the future, making a whole bunch of money for these these two people. And so Paul shared the gospel with her, cast a demon out of her. And she followed them and became a believer of Jesus Christ. The people who, uh, who, who owned her, who were making lots of money off of her, realized that now that she's a believer, she can't make money for us. And so they had them arrested, thrown into jail. And as they were in this uh, Philippian jail, they started singing songs and worshiping and praying. And the guard was just completely, the, the, uh, the prison doors opened up. And the jailer was scared. He took his sword. He's about to kill himself. And Paul said, wait, wait, wait. We're still here. Don't kill yourself. And he shared the gospel with him. And he said, what must I do to be saved? And he and his household were baptized and became believers. And this became the foundation of the church in Philippi. And so these people, this motley crew of people, were so near and so dear to the heart of Paul that when he writes this letter to the Philippian church, they are undoubtedly Paul's favorite church. And you see just oozing with love and gratitude and appreciation for them. So from this, about 10, 15 years later, here's Paul. He's the apostle. He's in this jail cell somewhere. People think it may be, it may have been Rome, may have been Ephesus. They're not exactly sure, but he's writing in jail. He's on trial, and he knows that when he stands before the government authorities, it is very likely that an unsympathetic judge would call for Paul's life. And so the church in Philippi hears about this, and they're like, oh my goodness, this is our hero, this is our love, this is our pastor, this is our missionary, the one who began our church, and his, their hearts are filled with just such an intense kind of love uh, for Paul. And their hearts are filled with this kind of longing, this kind of a, uh, just a love that just overwhelms in their heart. And, and they're like, what can we do in order to support 
the apostle? What can we do in order to support our pastor here, this missionary? What can we do in order to show our love for him? Because we know that it's very possible that in just a few weeks, just a few days even, he could die. And so their hearts are filled with this brokenness and with this love for their pastor. And so they send this man, Epaphroditus, they collect a gift, they make this care package, they put this thing together, and they say, Epaphroditus, here it is, go and and take this to Paul and send our love to him and let him know how we're doing. Let him know that we're standing firm in the Lord. Let him know that we love and that we're praying for him. And so Epaphroditus takes this gift, whatever it is, he takes his money and he goes to where Paul is. He goes to this prison cell where Paul is and he begins to, to, to tell him of the things that he's doing and he begins to encourage him. He begins to give life to him and Paul's heart is filled with excitement and with joy. The sad thing is all along the way, Epaphroditus gets really sick and his going back to Philippi is delayed. And so the people are beginning to worry. They're beginning to get concerned and Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church telling them what happened to Epaphroditus at the same time thanking them for the gift that they gave to him, at the same time giving them some words to encourage them as he sends this letter back to the Philippian church with their brother Epaphroditus. And so this is a context in which Paul is writing. And so if you look in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, uh, we begin to see uh, the introductory words that Paul is writing in this letter to the church of Philippi that meant so much to him, that was so near and dear to the heart of the apostle. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 11 um, and hear what the word of the Lord would say to us. This is God's word. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, All of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. This is God's word. Paul, his heart, Uh, for the Philippian church and for God just comes out and just bursts forth in this letter that he's writing. And it comes from the get-go. Three things we're going to look at that helps us to see Paul's heart is one, we're going to see a grace-driven introduction. A grace-driven hello. The second thing we're going to see is we're going to see a gospel-centered joy. And then the third thing, a God-driven prayer. Okay, the first thing we see, a grace-driven introduction. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. As Epaphroditus delivers this letter and it's being read publicly in front of the Philippian church, as they break the seal off of this letter, the first thing they see is Paul and Timothy. And all of a sudden, their hearts are sent soaring because Paul, to them, is a larger-than-life kind of hero. He's the one who 10, 15 years earlier had begun this church. He's the one who had been praying for them, loving them, caring for them. 
This was their Paul. And as they read this letter and they see these words, Paul, it just jumps out at them. And immediately these words begin to fill their heart and fill their soul with a sense of longing and anticipation of what he's going to say. Paul to them was, uh, one commentator said, Paul to them is like what Martin Luther was to the Germans in the 16th century. He was their hero. Uh, he was, their, he was their, their person that they, they looked up to and respected more than anyone else in life. He was to them what Abraham Lincoln was to slaves in the 19th century. This is who he was. He was their champion. He was the one who fought for their cause. He was the one who stood up for them through thick and thin. He was there for them. And Paul, as they read these words, brings, evokes such memories of, of joy and life and excitement and encouragement. And to know that he's still alive as he brings this letter brings joy into their hearts. And so as they continue reading, Paul and Timothy, it says, servants of Christ Jesus. Literally what this means is it means slaves of Christ Jesus. That's what they're saying. Paul is writing, and Timothy along with him, who would later, uh, who was one of the ones who was there in the founding of this church, who was there when uh, Lydia became baptized, who was there when this demon was cast out of this girl. Paul and Timothy, they're together. But as they write, they say they're servants, they're slaves of Christ Jesus. And so as these Philippian believers are reading this, it says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, they would have expected Paul to write, St. Paul, to my servants, the Philippians. Did you get this? St. Paul, to the servant Philippian church, but instead he flips this upside down. And he says, Paul, the slave, writing to the saints at the church of Philippi. And as the, 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 the believers in Philippi are reading this, their hearts are filled with this, some kind of uh, uh, a sense of what, what, is, what is going on here, this amazing grace and, and humility that is spilling forth from this greeting that Paul is giving here. Two other times, Paul considers himself a servant of Christ Jesus. In, uh, I think it's in Titus 1.1 and Romans 1.1, he says the same thing, servants of Christ Jesus. But in both of these other cases... He calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus, but then he also says an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear what Paul is doing. He calls himself a slave of Christ Jesus, but he does not bring this distinguished position and attach that to the end of his, the end of his name. He's coming with this deep sense of humility, coming saying, I'm a servant. That's all I am. Saying, I'm a servant of yours. That's not, I don't come to you as a high and mighty one. I don't come to you as your pastor. I don't come to you as an apostle. I don't come to you as this great, bigger-than-life hero. I come as a servant of yours, a servant of Christ Jesus. I'm sitting here in a Roman cell, and you might think that I'm a servant of Caesar. You might think I'm a servant of circumstances, but in reality, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. He's my master, and the only reason I'm here is because he wants me here. The only reason I'm in jail, in prison, is because he wants me in prison. Saying, you might think otherwise, but this is who I am. At the deepest essence of who I am, I'm a servant, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus, and that's the attitude with which I come. And then he comes and he calls them saints in Christ Jesus to all the saints. He's saying, however young or old you are, however mature or immature you are, if you've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, he's saying you're a saint. And so he's writing to these people, but instead of just calling them saints, he says, together with the overseers and deacons, he brings this position of authority, this distinguished position, and he attaches it to their label. And he says, I'm not coming, calling myself someone who's high and mighty, but I am according you that same kind of distinguished honor. And everybody knew that Paul was this super apostle way up there, and there were these humble disciples way down here, but he's flipping this around. 
And he's saying, I'm coming in a lowly and humble manner so that you might become elevated. I'm becoming less so that you might become greater, all for the sake of the gospel, all because of grace. Oh, why is Paul doing this? Because in this first verse, in this first verse, he is modeling for them what he would later challenge them to do. Because you see, there were some issues of people thinking that they were better than other people. And so what Paul is saying, in the same way that I'm coming, modeling this attitude, I'm saying to you the exact same thing. Do not consider yourself higher than you ought, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. And that's what Paul is doing here as he comes and brings this opening verse in the book of Philippians. And then in verse 2, grace and peace. These are the just loaded terms that are talking about the essence of the gospel. He's saying grace is the very thing by which we have relationship. It's the very thing for which I'm in chains. It's the very reason why you're going through persecution right now is because of the sake of the gospel. It's because of grace. It's because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And he's saying, may that reality become all effective in your life. (coughs) The grace of Jesus Christ. And then he says, peace. This all-consuming, reconciling power and action result of the grace of God in your life. He's saying, may that be yours. And so the first two verses, what Paul is doing here, it's kind of like if you've ever taken a bottle of Coke and you've shaken it up really good and then you open the bottle top and it just oozes out. It just bursts forth. And that's what Paul is doing in these first two verses. It's like he's shaken up the entire theology of the book of Philippians. He's packed it into these two verses and like a bottle of Coke, like a jack-in-the-box, it just bursts forth in all of this, the, the fullness of theology in just two verses bursting forth. And we could easily gloss over this and we miss out on so much of what this high theology that Paul is bringing here. But he's saying this is what the letter of the Philippians is gonna be about. And he packs it all in And he bursts forth, and the Philippians immediately from these first two sentences as reading it, their heart is moved and filled with this sense of wonder and grace and awe. And with tears in their hearts, they're like, Paul, you had me at hello. But then he continues going. Verse verse 3, we see a a gospel-driven, gospel-centered joy. Starting in verse 3, it says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel for the first day until now. Here we see for the very first time out of 14 times in the book of Philippians, Paul writing about joy. 14 times in this, go- in, in this letter, in just four chapters, he, he, he talks either about joy or about the call to rejoice. And one of the first things that we begin to realize about joy is that what Paul is talking about when he talks about joy is completely different from what most of us consider when we think about joy when it comes to our lives. When we think about joy, our joy is so often rooted in our circumstances, right? When is the last time you rejoiced in something? Think about this in your life. When's the last time you rejoiced in your life? Maybe it was when uh, you saw your baby being born for the first time. Maybe you rejoiced in that moment. Maybe this is the last time you rejoiced. Maybe for others of you, it's when you went down to Miami for Labor Day and you won the volleyball tournament. You were filled with this joy. I got this great trophy and we won and, and you were filled with this kind of a joy. Maybe it's when you saw that Justin Bieber concert on TV and, and you're filled with all kinds of joy. When was the last time you began to rejoice? For me, the last time was probably, I don't know, maybe if you're anything like me, you rejoice when you go uh, to pick blueberries out in a field, and that brings you this kind of a joy. But for Paul, the joy that he's talking about is completely different, is completely separate from his circumstances, because he's writing 
from a jail cell here. See, he's not sitting on some Mediterranean beach here, sipping on his margarita, looking out at, at the waves and, and saying, oh, guys, when I think about you, I always pray with joy. And that's not what he's doing. He's not sitting there uh, on some mountain looking out and, and seeing these double rainbows that almost look like triple rainbows. He's like, oh, my gosh, this is so vivid. And then he begins writing, I always pray with joy when I think about you. He's not sitting by some poolside in, in, in Vegas, kind of chilling with the shades on, saying, I'm so, I'm so joyful today, and so I ask you to rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Paul is going through enduring prison. His people are enduring persecution, and yet he can say that there's joy in my life, and I'm calling you to find joy in your life also. What in the world is causing Paul to be filled with such joy and then to call them in the midst of persecution to rejoice? Obviously, Paul's understanding of joy is something that is separated from the present circumstances in which he's living in. And if we can begin to understand this, I know we hear this all the time, but if you can viscerally and in your heart begin to understand this, then it would open up your heart to a new kind of joy. I know we all know this, don't we? Oh, yeah, happiness, maybe it's about circumstances. It's about picking blueberries. It's about seeing triple rainbows. But joy is something deep-rooted. It's deeper than that. Yeah, I know that. But how many of us really experience that joy? That really, in our hearts, how many of us really experience the joy of the Lord that Paul is talking about? When he tells us to rejoice in the Lord, how many of us really rejoice in the Lord? Tell you, one of the reasons why we're going through this is because I feel in my heart that I long for this kind of a joy. And I know in my heart that so many times my joy, quote unquote, is contingent upon my circumstances. And unless we begin to realize that joy must be separated from what we're going through in the present moment, then we'll never open up our hearts to find this true joy that he's talking about. So what in the world is he talking about when he says, I always pray with joy? It's very clear here that he's talking about a joy that's driven by the gospel. Because Paul realized that when life centers around me, If things bad happen to me, then of course there's not going to be any joy. But Paul is saying our lives do not revolve around ourselves. Our lives are not simply about us and me and what's going on with me. Could it be that God's greatest aim in life is not to make me happy? But could it be that God's greatest aim is for us to make it our greatest aim to bring pleasure to God through the expansion of the gospel? Paul is saying, if we begin to understand that, then we'll begin to realize the fullness of joy that he's talking about. He says, look, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, verse 5, that's what causes me to be joyful. That's what's bringing joy to my heart because I know that the gospel has taken root in you and has taken root in me as well. This word partnership he's talking about, the Philippian church over and against any other church, over and against any other church, they were partners in the gospel. It says in in verse 7, whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel. He's saying whether I'm in prison or whether I'm out there doing the work of ministry, whether I'm out there preaching the gospel of Christ, you stood by me in a way that nobody else did. Why? For the sake of the gospel. That's why I rejoice because I know that in you I have a partner. I know I have someone who will share in my sufferings, who will lift me up in prayer. But it's not just praying a prayer on Sunday morning and that's it. Okay, this challenges how we support our missionaries too. Saying there's a partnership that is deeper than just a a, a prayer that's lifted up. Saying they not only prayed those prayers, they sent care packages, they took care of Paul, they sent money, 
They prayed for him on a very regular basis. They even went to visit him. He's saying, this is the partnership that you have with me in the gospel. And he's saying, because of this, I take joy because I literally could not have done it without you. That's what partnership means. It is a sacrificial and committed kind of giving for the sake of the gospel, for the move of the gospel of Christ that's going forth in the world. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, that's the gospel, and that's the reason I have joy, because you are partners in this with me. I, uh, I, I'm a sports fan. I think if you know me well enough, you know that I enjoy sports, and uh, I like to go to Magic Games. And so the end of last year, uh, there was this, uh, this special event that they were throwing for uh, fans, season ticket holders, for group leaders, and things like that. And so um, it was basically a barbecue out of Crane's Roost, and it said, hey, uh, you, bring your, uh, you bring your card, and you can, you can get in. So I couldn't make it, and so uh, uh, Seho went in my stead. And so he was telling me about what it was like, and I asked him how it was. And it was, oh, it was really good. Cool. You know, they had all this food and, and barbecue and stuff like that, and all the players were there, and, and Dwight Howard was there, and everyone was, like, surrounding him. There's, like, swarms of people, and, and they're talking to him, taking pictures, getting autographs, and, and there are other people and other players, and they're being crowded by, by, by other uh, fans and, and things like that. And, and he was saying something defective as he was there, uh, all these people, players, had, had, had crowds around them, except for this one guy, this one player on the Magic. Um, I don't know if I should say his name, uh, but he's, uh, he's, he's thugged out a little bit. Um, he's actually not on the Magic anymore. He went all the way over to L.A., so he's playing for the Lakers, so he'll never hear this message. But, um, so Matt Barnes is walking along at, at Crane's Roost, and uh, like I said, all the other players are surrounded by people, and, and he's just kind of walking around, looking like he's kind of lonely. And so Seho says to him, he said, hey, Matt, can I take a picture with you? He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And he's like, let's take a picture. Take pictures and, and this stuff. And I'm sure at some point during the time, maybe someone got up and they gave a speech. And usually the way it is, is, is Dwight Howard or somebody will come up there and they'll say, we want to thank you, the fans, for making this the best year ever. Because without you, we couldn't have done this. Because without you, we couldn't have made it to the playoffs. Without you, we couldn't have been Eastern Conference uh, semifinalists or whatever it is. And, and they're saying all of these things. And, and every time I sit in one of those things, I think to myself, I think, you know, I think if we weren't there, you still would have done pretty well. I don't think we're really that necessary to your success. Yeah, maybe playing in front of uh, 10,000 people, 20,000 people is playing in front of nobody, but really, I don't think we're that important to you guys. I think you could say that to one another. Maybe, maybe Jameer Nelson would say that to Dwight. Hey, Dwight, without you, I couldn't have done it. Or maybe Dwight would say that to Richard Lewis or somebody. Say, you know what, without you, I couldn't have done it. But to us fans, no, because we're just spectators. We're just spectators. That's all we are. You know, I would believe it. I believe it when I see NFL quarterbacks, NFL running backs. You know what they do? At the end of a good season, when they make it to the Pro Bowl, they buy their offensive linemen gifts because their offensive linemen are the ones who protect them, make sure they don't get killed. Right? It's these Peyton Manning bought uh, suits for, and, and uh, Sony Blu-ray players for his offensive linemen. I read that somewhere. Tom Brady bought them. Uh, what did he buy them? Uh, I forget what he bought them, but... Uh, I th- he bought three of his linemen, Audi, some kind of car. He bought them, them cars. Chris Johnson, the running back from Olympia High School, plays for Tennessee. He bought all of his linemen watches. And it's quite literally their way of saying, without you, I couldn't have done this. Like, really, without you, I couldn't have done this. There's a difference between a basketball team saying this to people like you and me, fans. Oh, we couldn't have done it without you. Yeah, right. But then it's a different thing when these running backs and quarterbacks say this to the people who are protecting them. Because one... One group of people is, are merely spectators, just watching in the things that are going on and clapping and cheering. 
Another group of people is in there in the trenches, suffering together, fighting, bleeding, so that another person's success might become their success. And when Paul is writing with joy, he's saying, that's who you are. There are other churches who are merely spectators in the gospel, but you're in the trenches with me. You're suffering for me. You're bleeding. You're praying. You're giving of yourself, even in times of need, even when you don't have a lot. Out of that, your overwhelming generosity poured forth in grace so that the gospel might go forward. And the question is, are there people in your life who say to you, I thank my God every time I remember you. Whenever I pray for you, I pray with joy because you're in the trenches with me for the sake of the gospel. Do the missionaries that you support say that about you? Do the people that you send out on short-term missions and pray and giving your finances, do they come back with joy because they know that you're there in the trenches fighting with them? Do they say that gives me joy or is it just a check that's written disconnected from my life, disconnected from the rest of the trip? Paul saying, I take joy because you're partnering with me in the gospel. And because of you, my work is going forth. The gospel is going forth. And the ministry of Jesus Christ is being expanded. And the kingdom is going forth all over the world because of your partnership and ministry in the gospel. Saying, that's where joy comes from. Saying, because you gave, verse 6, I know that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It says, because you have partnered in the gospel, because those good works are evidence that you are walking with the Lord God, I know that on the end of the day, at the end of the day, when we get to the other side, that we will stand together in heaven. And because of that, I rejoice. My life is not about me. It's not about the apostle Paul. It's not about the servant Paul in my little life here. My life is about spending it so that the kingdom of God might go forth. My life is about giving up everything to make much of God. God's main aim in life is not to make much of DL. It's not to make much of James. It's not make, to make much of, of Ruby. It's not to make much of, of Peter, but it's to make much of himself through our lives. And when we begin to realize that no matter what happens to me, oh yeah, I'm just, I'm just a messenger. And though the messenger may be destroyed, the work of the message, the one who sends the messenger, the work of the message continues to go forth. We can take the light of that. And unless we begin to realize that life is not first and foremost about me and about my life, but about the gospel and its spread throughout the world, uh, then we'll never open up our hearts to the kind of joy that Paul talks about, the kind of joy that the Lord God wants to give to us. And then the last thing that we see, we see a God-driven prayer. Verse 9, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is, you look at this prayer, and if you were to kind of walk through it slowly, you would see that this is a God-driven prayer. Sometimes it's, it's, it's similar to the ones we pray, but a lot of times it's different from the kinds of prayers that we pray. A lot of times the kinds of prayers that we pray are, are maybe self-driven prayers, and that's okay to a certain extent. Maybe it's like the, the mother who was having a, a, a dinner, was hosting people over at her house, and she was slaving over the table and slaving over the kitchen and working and working and working and working, and finally the guests began to arrive, and she had finished her cooking, and so uh, she was so beat that she didn't want to pray for the meal, and so she asked her four-year-old daughter to pray for the meal said, would you bless the food for us? And she said, well, mommy, I don't know what I would pray. I don't know how to pray. And she said, just pray the way that you hear mommy pray. 
And so she said, okay, and she closed her eyes and she said, dear Lord, why in the world did I invite all these people over? <laughs> a lot of times we pray like that, don't we? We pray, God, I need your help for survival. Or other times it's like these children's prayers to God. This little boy, Raphael, said, dear God, please, 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 if you would give me a, a, a genie's lamp like Aladdin, then I would give you anything that I own except for my money and my chest set, right? There was another boy, there was another boy named Bruce who said, God, dear God, all I want, all I want, all I'm asking for is a pony. That's the only thing. I've never asked anything before. You can look it up in your records. But a lot of times that's how our prayers are. Like, God, this is what I want. This is what I want. This is what I want. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. And so we bring these to God. And he's like, you know what? That's okay. That's cool. That's good. And it's good for us to pray for these things. Psalm 37, 4, it says, uh, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. We ought to pray for these things. At the same time, I, I wonder if sometimes God's like, but I could do so much more. I wonder if the Father heart of God says, I could, I could do so much more in your life. I could give you so much more, and I know that those things concern you, and you want those things, and that's cool that you pray for these things, and anything that's big enough for you to worry about is good enough and big enough for you to pray about because I care about your needs, and I care about the things that you go through. But I wonder if sometimes God says, would you just dare to pray bigger prayers and believe on bigger things? The prayer that he prays is not that, that the church in Philippi would be healthy and strong and that they would be happy in, in, uh, in their position in life and that financially they would be blessed. He, I'm sure Paul prayed for those things. But in the prayer that he writes out for the church in Philippi, this is what he says, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and right and pure. Saying, this is what I pray for you. Yeah, I pray for you to do well in school. Yeah, I pray that your business would succeed. Yeah, I pray that you'd be healthy. And yeah, I pray that your family would be, would be intimate and united. But this is my prayer, that your love would just blow up and would just begin to grow more and more and more and more, that the church in Philippi would grow and that it would, it would impact the city because of your love. Thing Like a riverbank, though, like a riverbank that overflows, though, you need boundaries, you need guidelines. And so he's saying, I pray that your love would abound and that these would be the boundaries. There would be knowledge and there'd be depth of insight because love that goes unchecked, love that goes unwise, love that goes unfiltered can do a whole lot of damage, just like a river when it begins to overflow can have devastation in the places where it floods over to, saying in the same way love that does not have knowledge, that does not have depth of insight can cause a whole bunch of ruin in the lives of people. And so he prays that this love would have these boundaries, this knowledge. Okay, knowledge is basically that they would have this scriptural knowledge rising up within them. And depth of insight is literally, how do I take this knowledge and begin to apply it in my life? That's what he's saying. If you think you love, but you don't have scriptural knowledge and don't have the insight of that knowledge and how to apply that love, then sometimes your love can lead people astray. That's what he's saying. He's saying love for the sake of love isn't, worth loving, isn't worth having, isn't worth giving. But love, when it's grounded in the gospel, that's when love really begins to be love. It's not love at all costs. In fact, that was a, that was a problem in the Philippian church is that people were trying to lead them astray. And he's like, stand on knowledge, stand in depth of insight, and so let your love be guided in that way. That's what Paul is praying for his people. That's what he's praying for the church in Philippi. Knowledge is, is to know this stuff. It's to know the facts. We talk about it as a difference between knowledge and wisdom sometimes. Knowledge, right, is to know that 
For example, a tomato is a fruit. We all know that, right? We know that this is something that we've been taught maybe when we're younger that tomato is a vegetable. But as we get older, we realize that true knowledge tells us a tomato is a fruit. But here's what depth of insight is. How do I live that out? Here's how you apply this. Wisdom, depth of insight, is knowing not to put a tomato into a fruit salad, right? That's the difference between knowledge and depth of insight. He's asking that we would know the truth, but then we'd also be able to apply the truth. And in so doing, these would be the boundaries of love. See, that's what Paul is praying. He's praying for much deeper things and much bigger things. In fact, to the praise and glory of God is what he says at the end of this prayer, right? He says, to the, to the glory and praise of God. He's praying for bigger things so that God would be honored in them. The prayer that he prays for people is a God-driven prayer. As you pray for people in your family, as you pray for your friends, as you pray for your cell church members, you pray for your, <coughs> for your Sunday school students, what is it that you pray for? I think some of us, the only thing, the biggest thing we pray for is what they say to pray for, that I do well on this math test, that I would uh, begin to exercise three days a week, that I would uh, be able to study well, that I might honor my parents better. And these are good things. Like I said, we need to pray for these things. But if that's the biggest thing we're praying for, right? We talk about this. If that's the biggest thing we're praying for, then that's the biggest thing they're going to become, at least if it's up to us. I mentioned this at Evelyn's party last week, but as you think about the people that you're praying for, what is the grandest and biggest dream that you have for them? What's the biggest dream that you have for them? The challenge of Paul is that we would have a big vision for our people and that we would pray towards that vision and we would cling to that vision and we would move towards that vision and we would not settle for anything less. You see, Paul saw something deeper in the church in Philippi than what he was seeing here and he began to pray for that. You hear this, this uh, sculptor, August, Augustino Antonio, he was an Italian sculptor, and he had this, this, this great piece of marble that he was working with, and it was so stubborn and, and so resilient that he couldn't do anything with it, and he threw it away, and he said, this thing is useless. And several other sculptures went in, and they tried to chip away at it, but they, they felt that this piece of marble was, was just unworkable, and so they threw it out on the trash heap until Michelangelo grabbed a hold of this thing, and he started chipping and chipping and chipping and chipping and gave way to this beautiful masterpiece called David. And people asked him, how did you take what other people saw and threw away and said it's unworkable? How did you take that and, and turn it into something like this? And what, what, what Michelangelo said, he said, that masterpiece was always in there. I saw that from the very beginning. I just needed to, to chip away at all the rough edges so that the beauty of David would be brought out. I think that's kind of what Paul is saying here. He thinks about the church in Philippi. Like, yeah, you might see yourself in one way, but I see you as saints of Jesus Christ. You might see your Sunday school students in one way, but would you cling to a higher vision for your students? You might see your cell church members in one way. It's uncommitted, fickle. When are they going to get it? But he's saying, would you cling to a higher vision and begin to pray towards that vision and to realize that indeed greater things are yet to come, like we sang. Paul saw that in the city of Philippi. He saw that in the church in Philippi. Greater things are yet to come. And I'm not just going to pray for these simple things. I'm going to pray these God-driven prayers because I see so much more in them. It's there. The rough edges just need to be chipped away. And I just need to pray towards that vision and cling to that to see the beauty that is in them come out. You see, Paul could, could witness and experience this kind of grace because he had tasted it himself. Because before he was Paul, he was Saul. 
Before he was this great apostle, he was this great persecutor who had done more to hinder the work of the church than anybody else in all of human history. You look at people when you get these Voice of the Martyrs books and you see little children who were scarred and burned and, 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 and eaten up and tortured and you think what kind of an inhumane person could do something like that? The kind of person who do something like that is the apostle Paul before he was Paul. And yet the Lord Jesus saw in him what nobody else saw. And Jesus Christ gave his life for Paul. And he gave his life for you and me because he sees in us what other people didn't see. When other people see servants and slaves to sin, he sees a saint because of what he could do in our lives. Because he puts us in his divine television studio and he does an extreme makeover in our lives and he says, because of grace, your life will never be the same. And as the Spirit of God intercedes on our behalf, he prays for something so much bigger than what we're praying for. As we're praying for mere survival or the mere, mere needing of our needs or our mere desires being met, he's praying for something so much bigger. And the vision that he has for your life, the vision that he's got for Melissa, the vision that he's got for Joyce, the vision that he has for Andrew is so much bigger. And he's saying if you would see that and you'd begin to believe that, you'd begin to embrace it, you'd begin to pray for that vision, that the vision of heaven would be pulled down and yanked down so that it becomes a reality on earth, that's what he's praying. And as he opens up the scriptures, he opens up this letter, he's saying, this is my prayer for you. Oh, the dreams, the dreams that he has, not only for the church in Philippi, but the dreams that the Lord God has for us as his people as we journey together, that we'd find this, and in so doing, there would be a new kind of joy, a new kind of passion for Christ rising up in us as it was in the Apostle Paul. Let's pray together. As we uh, pray, let's take a moment to respond and reflect. How has the Lord God been speaking to you this morning? Maybe for you it's a call that you have been wanting to make more of yourself and less of other people. To be reminded of the Apostle Paul, who though he was a saint far and away, more holy and righteous probably than any of these people that he was writing to, he willingly submitted himself, calling himself a servant of Christ Jesus and a servant to them. Maybe for us, we've been thinking too much of ourselves, asking us to let go of titles, to let go of positions, to let go of everything that this world labels us with and say, can you just be content to be a servant of Christ Jesus? Washing the floors, washing the feet, cleaning the trash, serving faithfully behind the scenes when no one else sees. Maybe for some of us, that's the call of Christ in us. Maybe for others of us, it's to realize that, you know what, I've just written a check. I've just written a check, but like Keith Green says, God doesn't cash out-of-state checks in heaven. Maybe he's not wanting us to simply send our money, but he's wanting us to go and to give and to pray faithfully, diligently, to be a genuine partner, getting in the trenches, suffering with our missionaries, being there for them. Maybe for others of us, we've clung to such a small vision for our family members, for our children, for the people that we pray for, and God's challenging us. Would you lift your eyes to see a bigger vision, the vision that I have? Would you be willing to pray God-driven prayers on behalf of your people? For any of these things, if we've fallen uh, short or maybe we've doubted God. Let's ask for him to forgive us as we confess our sins. And then let's pray, God, here's how I can live this out. Help me, change me, mold me, make me so that I might be able to live in light of this truth so that I might live with a gospel-driven new kind of a joy 
in my heart. Okay, so let's pray together for a couple minutes. I'll close for us in prayer, but let's pray, really taking this time to solidify this message, this teaching in our hearts, asking God that he would make it real in us. Let's pray together. As we look into these words, Scripture, we see bursting forth from the pages of this letter, Paul's heart for the Philippians. And as we hear it and as we read it, we also hear the Father heart of God for us, a heart that just bursts through these pages, longing for so much more in our lives, longing for us to not settle for small dreams and walking by sight and not by faith and to not settle for just an easy, comfortable life. But you see us calling us out of that into a life of danger, into a life of adventure, into a life of pursuing you, knowing you, loving you in such a way that there would be a joy that the world could never know that just rises up within us and filters and flows out of us and would cause us to take the gospel outside of ourselves, outside of our church to those who need to know. So Father, we thank you for this time pray that you would help the word now to become flesh in us, to help us to begin to live it even now. We thank you, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.